Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. My name is Judith Koch. I'm a PhD student in international relations at the University of Sussex, and I'm the production manager of this podcast. Please welcome our today's host, Polly Pallister-Wilkins, political geographer and associate professor at the University of Amsterdam and board member of the EISA. Happy New Year to our listeners. Now, in today's podcast, we're going to be asking what assumptions does IR hold about modern efforts to formalize and depersonalize power? What is the role of crisis in unsettling modernist understandings of bureaucratic state power? And do we need to pay greater attention to the dangers of informality in understanding institutions? In this episode, we will be focusing on these questions and more with Professor Jonathan White from LSE as he discusses his award-winning article, The Deinstitutionalization of Power Beyond the State, winner of the EISA's Best Article in the European Journal of International Relations Award for 2023. Jonathan White is Professor of Politics and Deputy Head of the European Institute at the London School of Economics in the UK. He has held visiting positions at the Berlin Institute of Advanced Studies, Harvard, Stanford, the Humboldt University, Hertie School, Sciences Po Paris and the Australian National University. His most recent book is Politics of Last Resort, Governing by Emergency in the European Union, by Oxford University Press. And in 2017, he was awarded the British Academy Brian Barry Prize for Excellence in Political Science. So Jonathan, welcome to today's podcast and congratulations on winning this year's Best Article Prize. I have very much enjoyed delving into the world of deinstitutionalization, which I confess is not my field of expertise. And yet I still found some resonances with my own work um, on crisis. So now in your award-winning article, you open by suggesting that international organizations are, and I quote, sort of conventionally portrayed, so in IR and politics more broadly, as the sphere of law, institutions, and anonymous bureaucracy. And I think this is a framing all our listeners will be familiar with where the idea is that power has been abstracted from individuals and embedded in impersonal frameworks. But, <laughs> as you importantly ask, can such a perspective still be maintained? And if not, why not? Okay, well, th thank you for having me, uh, Polly. And um, 
I think you've got right to the to the nub of the of the article. So this is a um, a, a paper about the deinstitutionalization of power beyond the state. And I guess for me, the point of departure was that when we when we think of the making of the state, we tend to be thinking of it as a process, like you say, of the making of rules, the the depersonalization of power, the formalization of power, and if you like, the connection, the integration of uh, of power, so that it's somehow tied to a wider social whole. And very much as you say, I think international organizations are often approached as a sort of extension of that state-making project. Of course, many people say IOs are not states, so we're very familiar that this is a different type of entity. But insofar as um, they also seem to be about the making of institutions, the uh, creating of a kind of separation between individuals and um, wider frameworks of action. There seems to be kind of uh, quite a lot in common there, even a sort of radicalization of that process. Um, I think you see that, you know, both in the perspectives of the advocates of international organizations like the European Union and in their detractors. So in, in terms of the advocates of the European Union, for example, it's often been said that we need this entity in Europe as a way of constraining national rulers with some kind of uh, you know set, set of rules that will prevent a relapse into fascism or relapse into the conflicts of the first half of the 20th century. Early European Commission President Walter Hallstein emphasized this a lot. It's a community of law. So we, you know, a community of law seems to be exactly something that's a bit like the depersonalization of power and its its formalization. And and then of course also by critics of the European Union, they'd often say, you know, this is a faceless bureaucracy. This is uh, the whole problem is that it seems to have no discernible individuals, characters associated with it. It's kind of bureaucracy in that most kind of soulless. Uh, formulation. So very much as you suggest, when we think about international organizations like the European Union, I very much sense that we treat them as a sort of uh, almost an exaggerated version of that state-making process understood as the depersonalization of power, its formalization and its kind of integration into something wider. And you know, maybe that perspective was sustainable for, for most of the latter 20th century as, as the European Union, but also as other uh, institutions, IMF, World Bank, and so on, were, were taking shape, um, you probably could uh, afford to take that approach because that's kind of how they behaved, especially in more settled times when it's often easier to to play by rules, to, to act as a bureaucracy when the world is, uh, is not so fast changing. But I think very much the 21st century story would be a bit different. It's a world of of crisis, especially since the global financial crash, and increasingly, as you go through the 2010s, with the specificities in Europe of the eurozone um, and the pandemic, of course, and going into contemporary geopolitics in, in in all its dimensions. So, I think in this world of kind of fast changing political global situations that make it a bit harder to take that quite bureaucratic, law-bound approach, it becomes especially 
difficult to to understand international organizations as simply an extension of that longer process of regularizing modern authority and the and the argument of the of the article is is not just that it's not just that the world has changed but perhaps there are particular things about authority beyond the states that make it quite susceptible in these types of turbulent times to that recourse back to a more personalized a more informal style of rule great and we'll get to some of those in a minute but i i just then want to push you a little bit more to ask could we then say that this idea of institutionalization or depersonalization of power is something of an assumption that we have in ir i think certainly in in many approaches within ir of course it's a it's a broad church but in in many approaches there is that um organizing assumption that the world is made of of institutional units I and mean, you see this especially strongly i think in sub branches of ir like the study of of the european union where you know going back to the very beginning you have these debates about uh, whether we should focus on the european commission as the driver of the process whether we should uh, focus on nation states or forums in which nation states meet such as the council so it's been a, a a story that I think has been told from from the beginning as a story of of institutions, and of course, you know, institutionalisms are, are part of the the foundation of of a lot of contemporary political science and and, and international relations as well. And I mean, you ask if there's kind of a if there are assumptions written into that. I think the assumptions are that. Now, what is an institution? I guess it's a fairly settled set of practices with a division between individuals and the offices they hold, and some expectation that you know they they act largely in line with those uh, offices, and that if you took the individuals out, you'd still have something like a wider structure that carries on independently of the of the particularities of particular persons, um, and uh, and perhaps also. Maybe another assumption would be that uh, there's kind of denser interactions within an institution than across them. In other words, that we have reason to to talk about an institution as an actor because there are a lot of ties within it, but also that one can meaningfully draw boundaries between institutions and therefore distinguish between different actors on the international scene. Um, so I think these are part of the assumptions that um, are not just commonplace in, in international relations, but also in political science more more widely. And the, the paper I wrote, I guess it's got two sort of uh, targets in that respect. One would be the kind of unthinking, if that's not too critical, an unthinking assumption of institutions as being the main units by which one can narrate international politics. But also because there is, of course, a set of literatures that are somewhat more aware of the of the limits of that. So literatures on informal governance that you get in the study of international organizations, you get the study of the European Union. There you have a, a slightly more questioning approach to institutions, but nonetheless, I think often one that doesn't really take stock of the political normative implications that are at stake there. So insofar as there's a lot of very interesting stuff that's written about informality in international politics, in diplomacy, for example, in reaching 
agreements, treaty making, and so on. There's plenty of stuff that says, you know, yeah, this is uh, what happens in the corridors, what happens informally is, is, is quite significant in that process. But that's often narrated as a kind of story of um, functional adaptation, you know, individuals doing what helps to, to grease the works, that helps things move along more, more smoothly. And, you know, that's fine. That kind of makes sense. And that's probably how a lot of those individuals themselves involved would describe their actions, that they are sort of you know, making a complex, convoluted process work by recourse to to conversations, informal dinners, contacts across institutions and so on, that you need this kind of informality to to get big decisions taken. That's all fine. But of course, at the same time, you know, the emergence of the modern state and these processes of depersonalization, formalization of power, they had fairly profound normative underpinnings to them. They were meant to be about regularizing authority, originally constraining kings, going all the way back to uh, Middle Ages, uh, creating some notion that um, this is not just an individual who has a lot of power, but he has responsibilities, that there was some sort of uh, network of obligations that come with um, the crown and not just the individual that happens to, to hold the crown. So in the history of political thought that informs everything we might think about formality in politics more generally. Uh, it's not just a description of a historical process. It's not just uh, it's descriptive, but it's also, I, I would say, evokes certain kind of normative ideals about how politics should run. And the danger, perhaps, as we then shift our gaze to the international realm is that perhaps we forget that what we're concerned about here is not just um, identifying the place of institutions as in a positive sense as uh, whether they are the main actors or not, but thinking about to the extent that they are not, to the extent that informality and key individuals are very important. Um, what does that mean for accountability? What does that mean for our capacity to accept this authority or the reason that we might want to have to to contest it? Fantastic. Thank you. Now, sort of to change direction a little bit, I think it can be useful, especially for more junior colleagues, to get a sense of why particular arguments um, and their realization in articles like yours come about. So what led you to write this piece? So the origins of the piece go back, I guess, to the very end of the 2010s. I I think I originally wrote a, a piece for the New Statesman, in other words, a much shorter piece on this topic in late 2019, and did that mainly because I'd been working on a on a book on this topic, which came out around then. Politics of Last Resort it was a study of of the European Union in this period that I delimited earlier on, the kind of the crisis period of the of the 21st century, and so I'd been thinking about uh, how one might kind of draw a wider story of the European Union out of these ideas just described. And I, I wrote a shorter piece specifically on the kind of personalization, depersonalization aspect when Mario Draghi came to the end of his uh, tenure at, at the ECB. Uh, so it was kind of in my mind at the end of 2019, but I think then it was the pandemic that really kind of encouraged me to, to come back to these issues and, and to sort of not consider 
what I had just written as the last word, but rather to think about what actually is is the pandemic going to tell us about these processes of of informality, of uh, personalized forms of uh, authority, and so on. Because while on the one hand the pandemic is a is a slightly different story from things like the Troika from the Eurozone crisis of the 2010s, there are continuities nonetheless. And so I, I think I became increasingly conscious of them as you went into 2020, 2021, and, and felt moved to, to try and come back to these topics. And I, I guess the, kind of behind all that, I'd been teaching a course at LSE, which uh, was on both the making of the modern state, but also the significance of European integration of global aspects of politics in the present and, and trying to draw the two together. So I, uh, for several years, I've been teaching around some of these uh, themes in history, political thought, and connecting them to to contemporary politics. Uh, and, and so that was that gave me some resources to try and think about what I was seeing in 2020. It's nice to hear that that teaching also is sort of inspires research, right? Because I think we we tend to be encouraged to do it the other way around, right? So it's also nice when when ideas and thoughts come out of our teaching. Now, you argue that exceptional decision making in moments of crisis is by now a well recognized feature of emergency governing at the executive level, and I think many of us recognize that, understand that but that less attention has been paid to exceptionality and informality at the institutional level, and in particular in transnational institutions, as you've been telling us. Now, mainstream understandings of power in the EU tend to focus on what we sort of understand as technocratic modes of governing. However, in your article, you challenge this to focus on the EU, the EU as an institution where informality shapes governance. So can you give us some examples? Can you talk us through what this informality looks like at the level of the EU? Absolutely. So very much as you say, I think the notion that turbulent times, that emergencies have constitutional implications is is kind of well understood and we're being reminded all, all the time. So the hour of the executive, the moment where power of parliaments, of the judiciary may be weaker relative to the executive, that's that's very much part of the familiar script these days. But then, of course, you might, as a secondary question says, okay, the hour of the executive, but what is the executive in these moments? What's going on within this institution? Does it really, you know, deserve that highly depersonalized formulation, the executive, or or do we need to somehow narrate the story in, in slightly different terms? So that very much is where I felt there was more to be said. Now, how can we make this more concrete? Well, something that happens, of course, in the pandemic, uh, which, um, again, as I say, I was writing this against the, the backdrop of, is that you get this situation in, in 2021, especially where the vaccines are available and yet the European Union hasn't at, at that point got its act together in terms of vaccine procurement and distribution and so on. And you've got, well, Britain on its doorstep, but also other countries around the European Union, which seem to be getting hold of a vaccine. And there's a lot of pressure on, on the commission president in the European Union to to show some results in that respect. And so I think this is a is a case where you actually see a lot of the the patterns I'm describing unfolding. So uh, I think it's in the spring of 2021 you get an expose by the New York Times which says that uh, Ursula von der Leyen, 
as the commission president, has been negotiating with the, the head of Pfizer about vaccines in a kind of one-to-one fashion. What's up diplomacy, as it is described, and a negotiation which indeed seems to cut out much of the bureaucracy of the commission. In other words, the the teams that might inform both the assessment of of the vaccine, but also the details of the of the contract. Um, so the kind of scientific input side, I guess, of the process is something that European Court of Auditors ultimately highlights as uh, something that goes missing in this in this period. And in the New York Times' uh, expression, they say in achieving a deal with Pfizer, that personal diplomacy played a big role in the deal. In other words, this, if we are to accept the story, the the texting process between the, the commission president and the, the head of Pfizer is quite crucial to the, the shape of the deal that comes out of it. So maybe this is an example of what I'm talking about in this article. It's not the example I give in this article, but I think it very much speaks to it because you've got these three things going on. I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion that the making of the state has been described in in terms of three tendencies to do with the depersonalization of power, the formalization of power, and the integration of power into the wider society. Well, you can at least read many of the critiques that are made of Ursula von der Leyen in this period on the basis of uh, of this revelation as critiques in these terms. They're critiques of quite personalized modes of rule where the, the head of the commission is admittedly under pressure, trying to solve a problem, trying to achieve something, but in order to do so, somewhat going off-piste. Concerns about the detachment of office holders from formal procedures. As I said, the Court of Orders ultimately says this is kind of strange way to approach the problem. European Ombudsman also gets involved, ultimately uh, raises a critique of maladministration because the terms of these communications are not made public. And uh, and I guess then finally to do that third aspect to do with integration of power, you might say this is a kind of a deintegration of decision making from a wider public insofar as it becomes very hard to scrutinize, very hard to work out who is involved in decision making exactly and also who is outside the process, who who is cut out of it. So that might be one example that was kind of paralleling, paralleling the period that I was writing about. I think you can also maybe extend it into contemporary geopolitics. Think of the response to the Israel-Palestine situation at the very beginning of October, where you have, again, von der Leyen going to Israel very quickly, shaking hands with Netanyahu, offering unconditional support for Israeli response to, to Hamas's attack on the 7th of October. Or indeed, the I think it's the neighborhood commissioner, Talking okay. about uh, suspending European Union funding to okay. uh, Palestine in in this period again, something that seems to be somewhat discrepant from from the expectations of the of the office that uh, uh, he holds. Oliver Varhelly, I think, is the is the name of the commissioner there. So that's the one. So again, you might uh, say you've got something a bit similar here. It's a very different kind of situation. It's geopolitics rather than public health, rather than the economics of the Eurozone crisis of the 2010s, and notwithstanding the great differences of across all those different situations, what you are sort of seeing is the sense in which the offices that people hold, the institutional affiliations that correspond to them, are maybe not the 
the best guide to exactly how policy is being made. Often it's much more at the apex. It's key individuals at the top rather than that larger structure that we evoke when we talk about the institution of the executive, in this case of the European Commission. I've said a lot about the European Union, but I think you could also extend this story to other international organizations in that book of mine that I mentioned, Politics of Last Resort. I talk a little bit about the IMF, because of course the IMF was part of the Troika in the in the 2010s, the, the Troika being this uh, kind of composite entity of uh, the Commission, the IMF, the European Central Bank, tasked with uh, looking at the um, the terms on which loans would be extended to uh, European member states in, in financial trouble. And again, what you see in the wake of the Troika experience is a lot of internal critique emerging from the IMF of uh, people associated with this institution saying, yeah, this is, thing, things weren't done in the way that you would expect them to be done as the IMF, that key individuals have a lot of power, that ties between those individuals across institutions, in other words, between the IMF and the central bank and the commission, that, that we maybe need to think in terms of a network of people that work closely together, more closely perhaps than they work with the wider institution that they are affiliated with. So so yeah, I think it's a, it's a story that you can tell at various moments in the recent history of the European Union. And I think it's a story you can you can tell beyond the European Union. So it's a wider story of deinstitutionalization beyond the state, if I can use the title of the article. Fantastic. So in the article, The Deinstitutionalization of Power Beyond the State, you say that this form of decision-making displays kind of four features. And can you talk us through these four features? Yeah, so uh, at this point, points in the in the article, I guess I'm moving from the more general points about personalization, formalization, and so on to try and identify, well, how does this really look concretely in the case of the of the European Union? In that example I gave you, for example, with the WhatsApp story and, and the vaccines, I think you see some of these elements, but but not all of them. But roughly, what are we talking about? So we're talking on the one hand about the concentration of power in individuals. So in that case with von der Leyen, quite uh, clearly so, but been in very similar stories at the central bank with uh, with Draghi or perhaps later with with Lagarde. And, and here we do have you know interesting academic scholarship that talks about the presidentialization of institutions. There's still, I mean, of course, presidentialization still comes with the vocabulary of of the institution and way of thinking. Presidentialization is the description of the office, and and I'm saying we we often need to talk about individuals and personalities and so on. But nonetheless, there is a a scholarship there, I think, that is barking up the right tree, which is highlighting the way in which there's often this concentration of power in individuals at the top of, of a particular institutional unit. As I said, another aspect would be the collaboration, coordination of leaders across institutional boundaries. So I think you know, the Troika is kind of emblematic there precisely because it's a, a kind of a network of people from three different institutional affiliations and brings them together. But uh, that's sort of the, the cleanest example. But the wider story, I guess, would be that process of um, key individuals consulting, communicating with each other, making sure that they're on board with uh, particular decisions perhaps before they try and get them through their own institutional procedures. Informal forums sometimes, so things like the Eurogroup, things that maybe don't have a, a legal status necessarily. That used to be the European Council. I mean, in, in the European 
Union history, the European Council was often this kind of informal entity, which was basically summits between heads of states of the membership of the European community and then Union. And, and then later it becomes formalized as an institution of the EU. So later on, you can get a retrospective kind of institutionalization of a process that was earlier much more informal with the Eurozone that was the Eurogroup, which very much was a, a informal meeting of uh, finance ministers without any kind of place reserved for it within the structures of the European Union. And then fourthly, so I've talked about informal forums, I've talked about concentration of power in individuals, I've talked about uh, kind of cross-institutional networks. And fourthly, maybe slightly different intact would be kind of the, the public image, if you like, of authority, that kind of resort to more personalized forms, charisma, for example, the, the authority of the individual in their specificity, which, I mean, here we have to be a bit careful because sometimes, you know, media reports of international politics, especially where there's often that sense that there's a lack of characters, may be all too keen to try and emphasize characters, personalities, charisma as a way of bringing a lifeless story to life. So when you've got individuals like Mario Draghi being called the man who saved the Eurozone or Super Mario, these kind of things, you know, this is clearly on some level a media phenomenon. But I think at the same time, it does get at something which is that in these key emergency moments, you often have a kind of authority, which is the authority of an individual saying, trust me, believe me, it will be enough when I do whatever it takes to to settle the Eurozone, that I'm a, a safe pair of hands. And of course, then the fact that these individuals often rotate between different offices later on almost reaffirms that what matters is is as much them in their individuality and the charisma or the, the qualities that they are meant to bring to bear, perhaps of competence as well, as much as uh, simply where they happen to be housed institutionally at a, at a particular moment. So that for me would be the, the fourth dimension, kind of the well, the repersonalization of authority. So it's very much about particular individuals and their claim in their specificity to be able to address an extreme situation. Great. So now a little bit of maybe a more methodological question. And so you say that we sort of, we, and I mean we as scholars, social scientists, fail to discuss these patterns of rule because they are inherently hard to record. So my question to you would be, why is this so? Um, exactly. So on one level, I guess it's simply the fact that when you depart from the organogram, if you depart from the way in which things are meant to look on paper, then of course, it's very hard as an observer to know where to look. Who are the key individuals? Who are the people that I should be tracking because often it may be figures that are perhaps less well known to the public. Some of them will be very well known, certainly they will be kind of key figures as reported in the media, but but other relevant individuals may be much less well known um, and kind of interface figures between different institutions. So I think whenever something departs from, if you like, how the institution looks on paper, then you've got that basic problem of, uh, of trying to work how it really works in in practice and and that kind of is a problem within the state it's it's a problem within international organizations especially insofar as they're slightly less codified but it's uh, it's a problem of the political scientists in a more in a more general sense maybe another aspect would be 
secrecy. So I've talked about opacity, but secrecy, of course, is something a bit more than that because secrecy is kind of uh, intentional withholding of certain practices from from wider scrutiny. And I guess much of the critical reaction, for example, to that WhatsApp story that I uh, described is exactly based on the idea that this is withholding information. The WhatsApp messages are not later revealed. The commission says, well, these are ephemeral forms of communication. We don't keep records. How could we possibly show you what the uh, the terms of that exchange was? Um, and as I said, then the European Ombudsman raises some doubts about whether that's a valid explanation. But uh, the deliberate effort to to keep things off the books, to, to do things in ways that are hard to scrutinize, is going to be often, I think, part of the, the story. And you know, this is obviously for whole reams of social science, the great barrier is that we can only study what is somehow made available to us, at least in the present. The role of historians is somewhat different in that respect. Things come to to light when when the stakes are perhaps not so high, when individuals have uh, retired to write their memoirs, when uh, 30-year rules or whatever have uh, allowed the disclosure of certain forms of state uh, confidential information. But the task of the social science, insofar as they're working in a moving present, the task of the social scientist is, is that much harder when it comes to actions which, I mean, secrecy is a strong word, but let's say that inhabit the zone between opacity and uh, deliberate secrecy. And then I guess, finally, maybe it comes back to something I was saying earlier on, insofar as the raison d'etre of international organizations has often been assumed to be about the proceduralization of power, constraining governments, making sure that they do things in a in a wider interest beyond a national interest. Come back to Halstein's idea of the community of law. Insofar as we approach these settings with these kinds of expectation, I think there's a temptation to kind of discount a little bit whatever informality, whatever exceptionalism one encounters, or indeed to see it as exceptional, transitional, something that is in the process of being remedied, eradicated. Uh, I mentioned, you know, the way in which some informal forms like the European Council can retrospectively become formal entities with a legal status. That kind of story that we often tell of the the making of the European Union as a kind of process of rectifying these anomalies across time means that whenever you encounter them as a social scientist at a particular moment, it's tempting to say, yeah, sure, things are a little bit irregular here. And to get this crisis resolved, there had to be a little bit of um, discretion exercised in uh, improvised and unforeseeable ways. But for the sake of creating a new order, which will be that much more robust, that much more proceduralized as a consequence. So this temptation to to see all these things as transitional, I think, is uh, something that comes out of that wider attitude towards these organizations as characterized elementally by exactly that bureaucratic or technocratic set of features. So we, we don't take seriously the, the ways in which they depart from that image. Thank you so much. I mean, this governing by WhatsApp and text message, I mean, this was such a thing during the pandemic. And even before, I mean, in the Netherlands, we had, you can edit this out, but you just, we had this huge problem, right? It was like, everything's on the text messages. Oh, we can't find the text messages anymore. You know, same thing with Boris Johnson. You know. 
Absolutely, yeah. Same thing if you're a footballer's wife, apparently, also. <laughs> Absolutely. Also, at uh, at the level of municipal government, I mean, in Madrid, uh, there was a, a very similar story of uh, decision making by WhatsApp in the middle of the night to um, ensure the supply of medical supplies at the height of the pandemic. So, it's something you get at a different levels of government, but I think when you see it at the transnational level, you're sort of getting a glimpse of, uh, of something that's a bit more, or as a kind of the way of doing business very often in these yeah. crisis situations. I think, I think for, for any researcher, it's quite worrying, right? This sort of the shift to the digital, like what happens to the archive? You know, Absolutely. like where are we going to go? We're not going to go to queue and sit there leafing through. <laughs> exactly. Third, Works, third year rules you know? are not going to help on that front. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly so. Yeah. Okay, back to back to our questions. Informality then is an important part of modern governance, right? I think you you tell us this so well in the article and, and as you've been explaining to us um, in this podcast today. But so if it's an important part of modern governance, and I mean I'm with you in that I yes, it's absolutely an important part of modern governance. How can we think about it? Are our existing theories and concepts enough? So my suspicion is um, perhaps not, although I, I would emphasize that there is plenty of good work that goes on precisely with this interest in informality, with uh, looking at how key individuals act at, at particular moments. So I certainly wouldn't want to be claiming to, to bring a, a research object that is entirely absent. Um, by no means. As I said before, I think something that we need to do is connect some of that literature with the wider ideas and the history of political thought about why it matters. In other words, not just to when we see kind of uh, what's up governments or when, or when we see the phenomenon of uh, key decisions being taken in the hallways of an international organization, not just to, to treat that with a very realist eye that says, but of course, it's always been, that's how it always will be. Yes, at some level, but I think we need to always keep trying to locate that within a wider story of why that might be a problem, or if we're going to applaud it, then on what grounds precisely? What are the criteria that we want to, to bring to bear that uh, allow us to treat it as something positive rather than something that's simply about unaccountable or arbitrary forms of rule? So I guess my, my first impulse would be to say, connect some of the existing scholarship um, that does take informality seriously with some of the political theory or indeed history that reminds us why this is worth studying in the first place. And I think then maybe secondly, more positivistically, I think ethnography is uh, is very important in this respect. There's a very good study of the European commissioned by Frédéric Marant, which uh, is exactly an ethnography done over several years, which I think speaks to, to many of these uh, ideas. And I guess the argument would be you start to see who is who in such a setting only by spending some time there, only by trying to work out who talks to who. How do groups of individuals move from one issue to another, sort of become a task force on something to do with the Eurozone and then become shifted to a task force on something to do with the pandemic or something. So this kind of, uh, you start to become more familiar, I think, with uh, with the informal networks of power by getting up close to them over a longer period of time and sort of achieving that invisibility that at least is the is the ideal when it comes to ethnography, I guess, or or 
kind of a very reflexive uh, understanding of how you relate to the site that you're in. And then I guess finally, one might take seriously forms of social science that take as their object things like fields, things like networks, things that straddle institutional structures. Field theory, of course, is coming out of Bourdieu's, I think, uh, very much inspired by that concern to to evoke an object of study which is irreducible to simply constitutional delineations of power, um, also simply irreducible to kind of conventional class analysis, but actually empiricizes the question of who has power in uh, in a given setting, how do we define the boundaries of that setting, and tries to develop concepts to to tell those stories. We don't have to all become Bordisians by any means, but I think maybe this would be the the sensibility to have, to think about ways in which one can do social science with an attentiveness to the connections that form across institutional divides or indeed across the boundaries of states. And then, of course, that may also draw in forms of private power, large capitalist interests. In other words, think all the ways in which we might tell a story that straddles the the temptation to, to narrate a crisis in terms of, is the European Commission the, the winner or is the European Commission the loser out of the latest crisis of the, of the European Union? I think looking beyond these types of who's up, who's down in an institutional sense is quite important for, for the social science of international organizations. Now, you, you've mentioned a few names already. You've mentioned Frédéric Mahon, you've mentioned Pierre Bourdieu. But if our listeners are interested in probing these ideas a bit more deeply, who should they read to develop a good foundation in these debates? Much of my article was inspired by the history of political thought. As I as I said, I for a long time have been teaching not just the making of the state as a set of practices, but the making of the state as an idea, which is a sort of abstraction of power from the individual, from the monarch to something that is even there when the king is dead, when the queen is dead, when you have that transition, there's still something larger than the individual present. I think one of the classic books on on this is uh, is Ernst Kantorovich's book, the, the King's Two Bodies. So this is uh, uh, a historical study of the transformation of political authority, I guess, from the medieval world into the into the modern. And part of it is exactly kind of documenting that making of the distinction between the person and the office. In other words, the the depersonalization of power. He documents very nicely how you, know, you start to see a shift from the idea of the king to the idea of the crown as something that is, I mean, a bit almost like an office. The office, of course, is a slightly different concept from the crown, but that distinction between the two, which of course he also traces back to the church. In other words, there are prototypes even going before political authority, prototypes for kind of this corporatization of of power. The idea of the church as something more than particular individuals within it. So Kantorovich's um, historical study is a is a classic of the making of modern authority and picks up on a lot of the uh, distinctions that I, I found interesting to bring to bear on, on contemporary politics in uh, in this particular 
article. And then, you know, there's, there's many others that one might look at in the history of political thought. Quentin Skinner has a lot of work on uh, the concept of, of the state in, in these terms as sort of the, the detachment of, of something like status from that which originally describes the, the status of the king, of the prince, of an individual, to something like uh, the state as detached from the status of a particular referent, particular person. So Quentin Skinner is a, is a key name uh, clearly in these in these stories of the making of modern authority. Uh, Gianfranco Poggi is another author I, I, I looked at for, for the purposes of this article. And again, more, more recently, Norberto Bobbio, Italian political philosopher, has some very interesting work on a whole range of themes to do with democracy, but for example, of relevance here to do with the distinction between the rule of laws and the rule of persons. So kind of age-old dichotomy, but very, very nicely brought to life by by Bobbio. And I think one can think about international organizations in exactly these terms. To what extent is the European Union a story of the rule of laws, a kind of abstract principles, or is it a story of the rule of, of persons, of key individuals, of the kind that I've been describing in, in uh, crisis situations? Um, and if it's a story of both, how, how does one uh, make those two narratives uh, intersect with each other? So I, I, I guess I've been mentioning there mainly um, historians of political thought, thinkers of political theory. That reflects my interests. Clearly, not everyone's going to want to go deep into that world. But for me, probably international relations, political science generally can benefit from connecting its its studies of contemporary and often quite ostensibly very different entities from the state, such as the international organization, such as the European Union, things that consciously present themselves as rather different phenomena. But I think you can gain a lot from going back to some of the, the classics in the history of political thought, if not to find the answers, then at least to pose the questions. Could not agree more. Changing direction a little bit, away from thinking about other people's work to your work again. Um, you are sort of quite clear in your article about the implications of deinstitutionalization, and you convincingly outline these, and you sort of talk about these implications in terms of oversight, legitimacy, accountability. So I'm hoping you can sort of flesh these out a little bit more for our listeners. Yes. Yeah, so why does it all matter? No, it's, it's tempting, as I, as I said, to, to see these types of informal, personalized forms of rule as simply kind of efficient, or at least done in the name of efficiency. So that when you've got a fast-moving situation, then you need a fast-moving response. And sometimes it's easier for Ursula von der Leyen to pick up her phone to negotiate the very real and pressing need for, for vaccines with the the highest relevant uh, interlocutor that she can uh, she can get hold of so it's very natural and it's very common to see these as patterns of decision making that are inspired by the need for expediency for for speeding things up for making things more efficient as i tried to to argue especially in the last part of uh, of my article um we should surely not close our eyes to some of the the more problematic aspects that come with this informal rule is is harder to scrutinize we've we've mentioned opacity and, and secrecy today and clearly that makes it all that much harder to 
to form a judgment about whether authority has been exercised well or or badly. Um, and you know, there's a group of MEPs who bring a case on exactly this question about the vaccine stuff because they they say that we haven't been able to scrutinise this uh, this decision adequately. So questions of contestation, um, even if we say that all the relevant figures are well-intentioned, even if we assume the best, that they are not acting in a kind of arbitrary or even malevolent fashion, nonetheless, even with the best people in power, you still want to be able to to scrutinize what uh, what they've done to confirm to your own satisfaction that that is indeed the case. Leaving aside the, the possibility, of course, that there are vested interests, that there are people who have ideological commitments that mean that one really wants to know in, in the details of, of how they are um, wielding the power that they have. I think also informal in kinds of, uh, of rule and especially personalized charismatic forms of, uh, of authority, they're especially hard to, to contest at the level of ideas. In other words, um, you know, we often have some idea of, of who the relevant figures are, and I've mentioned a few a few names that are, in some ways, you know, not entirely surprising names to bring up. You might say, well, if we if we can say that uh, it was von der Leyen who's central to to the crisis response in that particular moment of the pandemic, or if we if we can say Mario Draghi is indeed crucial to the European Central Bank's uh, coordination with other members of the Troika, fine, we know sort of where to look. But the more power is kind of quite personalized and quite um, centered on individuals and names, it's, uh, and I think we know this from studies of the presidentialization of power within the state, it's it's much harder to to contest it at the level of ideas of the ends for which it is being um, exercised. It's tempting to contest power, if one can contest it at all, in terms of competence, in terms of well, moral character sometimes, but is Draghi someone who who has the right judgment, who will uh, get things done at key moments in a uh, reliable fashion? It's much harder when you've got names floating around. It's much harder to talk about ideologies, isms, things that require us to abstract from personalities to the larger commitments that one might want to associate with them. And you know, insofar as the making of the modern state was a process of depersonalization, it was also the process of making corporate entities like political parties that were defined by um, isms, things that were not about personalities, but things about uh, uh, depersonalized forms of, uh, of commitment. So I, I think this would be the other um, feature of why informal rule is, is hard to, to politicize, to contest it's not just hard to track down who's doing what, but even if you can, you've probably got a list of uh, of names or faces in your mind, and it's that much harder to um, to challenge on the grounds of a politics of ideas rather than a, a politics of, of persons. So I think that's the uh, that's the other challenging political implication. All of this within a kind of with my hat as a kind of a normative uh, theorist. On, but then um, maybe also as a, as a social scientist, you might say, well, it's uh, whether or not it's uh, legitimate. It's kind of um, it's bad strategy. It's uh, it has problems of sociological legitimacy, legitimacy, regardless of the problems of of normative legitimacy. There's a real risk, I think, of uh, 
well, conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories are the kind of the exaggeration of the kind of patterns I've been describing and the the, the tendency to see them, whether they are present or not, and to add a whole set of in, ingredients into them of, of malevolent actors of, of particular agendas that uh, may well be wholly absent in the international setting. But um, the more power has this informal structure, it, it's kind of a very fertile ground for these um, types of uh, theorizing about how power really is, uh, is, is exercised. And of course, then it becomes, even by those who are not conspiracy theorists, it becomes tempting to, well, it becomes hard to distinguish those who are exercising power at a particular moment from the wider structure that they are occupying. So if you don't like what Lagarde, Draghi, whatever are doing at a particular moment, well, you're probably going to take it out on the European Union as a whole, as opposed to saying, ah, oh, it was just uh, it was just the incumbents of office at a particular moment that I don't like. I have no problem with the wider with the wider structures. So it, it's uh, leaving aside the more normative questions, I think it's uh, it's it has implications for the robustness of international authority because the more you have this kind of informal, personalized mode of rule, firstly, there's the risk of conspiracy theories. Secondly, there's a risk of a kind of undiscriminating rejection of the whole thing because you can't localize your dissatisfaction so easily on the temporary incumbents of a particular office. Fantastic. Thank you. And finally, to, to sort of sum up, because there's been so, I mean, this has been so in-depth and, and fascinating and I'm, you know, everyone's going to take so many, so many things away from this. I'm certainly going to take so many things away from this, but if you would like our readers to take away one thing from your article. I mean, hopefully they will go and read it, firstly, but if they don't, <laughs> and if they do, um, if they take away one thing, what should it be, firstly? And what further research would you like to see your article give rise to? So in terms of the basic takeaway, I guess I've been mapping out a kind of uh, a critique of unthinking institutionalist approaches in social science. You sometimes hear in a different context the term methodological nationalism, the kind of unthinking recourse to see the world in terms of, of nations and uh, a national interests or to treat the nation state as the relevant um, comparator when thinking about uh, particular tendencies within uh, the present and the recent past. Well, I think one might maybe say that there is a danger of methodological institutionalism. Um, and by saying that, I don't want to discredit anyone who does want to tell the story of the world institutions, but I think we should, we should treat institutions as a precarious achievement. Um, they're things that may well in many contexts, and perhaps especially not in, in emergency contexts, they may well be the most relevant units by which to tell a story. Just as Ulrich Beck, when talking about methodological nationalism, very much concedes that you know very often we have good reason to focus on the nation state when we want to talk about the story of contemporary global politics. But in, in both cases, empiricize that, that, uh, that unit, the institution the nation and so on, treated as something which 
is at, at best a precarious and possibly a, a temporary achievement, something that is prone to countervailing tendencies that threaten to, to unmake it, or at least that make it subordinate to other things, networks, fields, and so on at, at key moments. So so I guess that would be my main point. Think about these in awareness of the, the ways in which the world is often not about institutions and in awareness of the normative stakes that come with that. In terms of what one might want to study later on, well, clearly there are questions that I don't go deep into in this article about whether anything can actually be done about this. Is this a problem of ultimately constitutional design? Because I do think there's something particular about the international setting, which is quite often uncodified or weakly codified, or the sanctions for for breaches are often less strong than they are in the hierarchical world of the state. So that might lead some to think about, is there an agenda of constitutional design that can can respond to this. That may be necessary, but may be anything but a sufficient response to these problems. We only have to look at supposedly well-constitutionalized states in in the contemporary world, such as the US, to realize that you know, they too have problems of uh, of the concentration of power in key individuals, executive discretion, and, and, and so on. So it may well be that constitutional design is an interesting line of research here, but one that needs to be coupled also with thinking about a whole range of other features. I've mentioned a bit technology today. So maybe bringing in contemporary changes in how decisions are taken based on the kind of technological media that are brought to bear is another line of of approach to to, to thinking about this. Um, And of course, ultimately, we probably have to reckon with the idea that uh, certain normative ideals sometimes can... uh, can be outlived, that the world moves on, that we have to start rethinking what is the appropriate standards to bring to bear on uh, contemporary decision-making. And as the world changes ever faster than that, that process of revising normative standards without prematurely acquiescing in their breach is a very delicate and interesting issue that I think could inspire plenty of further research. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining us today and for your deeply insightful answers. And I'd like to wish all of our listeners a happy new year. Me too. Happy new year. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and hosts in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible.